Hey everyone and welcome to the year was the podcast all about today that gives you just enough information to effectively be that guy at the party causing all your friends to question hey who invited you like seriously why are you here i'm your host michael Montalvo, and for the next few minutes we will swim through the river of time to find out what makes today truly unique in this episode we examine the events that occurred november 18th Today's episode deals with suicide and murder, so as a disclaimer, if you or anyone you know is thinking about suicide, please call the suicide hotline or reach out for help. I'm going to put a link in the description. As a child, Jim Jones regularly attended church. In fact, after attending Butler University in Indianapolis, he made the decision to join the ministry, so there was always something inside of him that needed followers. He was also a big supporter and became a civil rights activist calling for racial integration, which at the time was looked down on as it was the 1950s. It was in 1955 that the Wings of Deliverance was founded, and if that sounds like a cult, good, because it was, or at least it would become one. And here is where our story really starts. Founded with the belief that society could overcome racism and poverty, a fight we are still having today, Jim Jones's church, the Wings of Deliverance, drew a large, integrated congregation. In 1960, the Wings of Deliverance had become the People's Temple and affiliated itself with the Disciples of Christ, a denomination of the Christian church emphasizing Christian unity, inclusiveness, and social action. Jones combined ideals from communism, socialism, and Christianity to form an apostolic socialism society that was heavily influenced by the Marxist liberation theology that had become popular with Latin American clergy. By 1964, he had become ordained, and in 1965, he began to warn the world of a nuclear holocaust. With all of this going on, Jones was accused of financial fraud, physical abuse of his followers, and the mistreatment of children. The People's Temple was heavily criticized and not one to take it lying down. Jim Jones made plans to pack up his congregation and move far, far away. In 1974, the agricultural settlement Jonestown was founded in Guana. It was built with the idea and hope that it would be a socialist utopia for the world and for the People's Temple people. In 1977, with the increasing criticisms, Jones invited members to join him and finally made the move to Jonestown. But Jim Jones had a growing sense of paranoia, and drug use may have been a factor for his mental decline. Abstinence from drugs was mandated by the temple, but it is widely believed that Jones was abusing drugs and that he was also drugging members in order to manipulate his followers. Terry O'Shea, a former member of Jonestown, would later say, We didn't know he was a drug addict. Drugs were forbidden at the temple. We weren't supposed to do that kind of stuff. I learned after that he drugged people on the outpost there to keep them from trying to leave, to keep them from trying to descend, to control them in different ways, all unbeknownst to the masses. By this time, Jones's grasp on reality had fully begun to loosen, and he started turning on his followers, pointing guns at them and becoming violent, all while also maintaining 
his godlike delusions. He pretended to heal people, including claiming to cure cancer, all while conditions continued to worsen in Jonestown. Followers who had packed up their lives to follow him endured 15 months of little food and shelter. Some became disillusioned with the camp and began to leave the community. Leslie Wilson, one of the 11 to leave on November 18, 1978, would say, It was a slave camp run by a madman. Relatives of those in the camp became concerned and began to go to the U.S. government for help. United States Congressman Leo J. Ryan heard these concerns and agreed to go and visit Jonestown to see for himself what exactly was going on. Ryan took a media crew and a handful of relatives of Jonestown followers with the intention to investigate the community. Julia Shears, author of A Thousand Lives, The Untold Story of Hope, Deception, and Survival at Jonestown, wrote, Congressman Leo Ryan gets there and they do this song and dance. Jones has been rehearsing people for weeks on what to say to Ryan and the media, even though they've been starving. He would have his inner circle, his lieutenants, go around and rehearse people. What do you eat in Jonestown? Well, we eat lamb and steak and chicken. Every day they were rehearsing what to say, and Ryan is fooled by this. He actually believes that people are happy there. The year was 1978, and on this day, November 18th, the Jonestown Massacre occurred. As Ryan and his team, seemingly satisfied with what they found, prepared to leave, a follower of Jones slips them a note asking for help. Having not allowed his followers to talk to Ryan or the media, when Jones finds out about this, he demands Ryan's group leave, which they do, but not without offering to take members of Jonestown with them, if they want to go. Fourteen people choose to go with him. Unknown to others during this time, eleven followers, including O'Shea, made their walk to freedom and left Jonestown for the next town over. As the fourteen defectors and Ryan's crew wait for planes to take them away, a tractor pulling a trailer of armed men shows up at the airstrip and begins shooting. Five people, including Congressman Ryan, are killed. Back at the camp, the mass suicide was beginning. Jones used the killing of Ryan to strike fear into his followers, claiming that authorities would soon parachute in and take control of the camp. He used this fear and was able to manipulate his followers into not giving into what they saw as a corrupt government. Armed guards lined up the people and nurses forced followers to drink poison-flavored fruit drink. The article I read said it was grape. Prior to this, they had held rehearsals so that people would know what to do in the situation. Also prior to this, Jones had gotten a jeweler's license so that he could obtain a large amount of cyanide. Jewelers use it in their cleaning process. For two years, he had been stockpiling the cyanide and planning for an event like this to occur. Those who stood against him were lined up first, along with the children. Odell Rhodes, a survivor of the massacre, would say, They started with the babies. It just got all out of order. Babies were screaming, children were screaming, and there was mass confusion. As the people were lining up and drinking the drink, Jones was there telling them that they would meet in another place. On an audio recording from Jones known as the Death Tape, you can hear him say to the parents not to tell their children that they are dying, because it would scare them. If you want to hear Jones's Death Tape, you can find a recording of it online. 
Some people tried to run and some escaped, but when authorities arrived on scene the next day, they found hundreds of dead bodies. Some of them were embracing. When it was done, there were over 900 men, women, and children dead in Jonestown. 33 survived. Jim Jones did not survive. He was found with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. When we look back at this today, it's hard to believe how it could really occur. But in a world where people are looking to belong to something and are willing to follow, it's not out of the realm of disbelief. Terry O'Shea had gone to Jonestown after being found living on the street. She had no food or water, and the promise of equality was more than enough reason to go. And I think that was Jones's greatest skill, seeing people like this in need and offering them what they wanted. O'Shea said of Jones, He was very charismatic and attracted people who were feeling vulnerable or disenfranchised for whatever reason. Most of them were African American, but there were also white people, Jewish people, people of Mexican descent. There were religious Christians and communists. If you wanted religion, Jim Jones could give it to you. If you wanted socialism, he could give it to you. If you were looking for a father figure, he'd be your father. He always honed in on what you needed and managed to bring you in emotionally. That's going to do it for us today. If you like this podcast and want to hear more, give us a rate and a review. That helps me out and helps steer this in a direction that is hopefully good for all. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can find the Year Was Audio version on your podcast app of choice. You can find me on social media and at YouTube at the Apple Cider Club. And as always, I want to thank the Tim Kreitz Band for our musical theme. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.